Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Hiding Dirty Money in Plain Sight, a case study on following the money. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tuesday Raytano. I'm the Deputy Director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And it is a great honor and a great privilege to welcome you all to the first session of Organized Crime Fest 2021. 24 hours of a ridiculous amount of fascinating research, interesting perspectives from a diverse set of stakeholders. We had a blast last year, (laughs) a sleepless blast, but um, a a really good session, a really good exchange, which was then carried over into a series of podcasts, interviews that were published online, and a lot of great informal contacts, which have been built up and continued throughout the year. So we're thrilled to see so many of you back with us and a number of new names and faces. Without further ado, I'm going to kick off panel 1D which is Hiding Dirty Money in Plain Sight, a case study on following the money. We are thrilled to have with us today three panelists, David, Gus, and Niels, who I will introduce properly in a second, who will each be presenting and talking around a series of cases which demonstrate how organized crime groups are working, how they're facilitating um, illicit activities and the money that flows from it through our financial systems. All three, Gus, Niels, and David, are... Um, serving or former police officers in their national police agencies and have an enormous amount of experience to bring to the table. We will be doing three roughly 10-minute presentations, um, all of which are interrelated, and then we will open up for an opportunity for questions. What we would ask of all of those who have joined us today is if you could please keep your microphones on mute during the presentations. If you have questions, to put them into the chat box We will probably be processing or possibly packaging those questions since it is a relatively limited time for discussion afterwards. And then the panelists will have at least two rounds to respond. So just to reiterate, the microphone's on mute, please, and put your questions as they come up into the chat so we can take a look at them. If there are any major issues, please just uh, message to the secretariat, either to the stream managers who are marked with the 24 symbol, and they will try and address your concerns. So thank you very much again for joining us and let's start the substantive work. First hour of 24 to come. So it is my great pleasure to give the floor now to David Tyree. He is a resident agent in charge for the Drug Enforcement Administration in Wyoming, and he will be speaking on a number of the investigative tools and techniques that he's been using related to the seizing of suspected laundered drug proceeds. David, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much to everybody, to the panel, and for this opportunity to uh, speak to over 40 countries. It is not lost on me uh, that not everyone speaks English. And after working myself overseas in Portugal and West Africa, uh, I am honored to speak to my European partners again, because that was the highlight of my last 24 years working with the Drug Enforcement Administration. If I could communicate the message clearly and in the beginning, it's simply to, when we talk about following the money, um, you have to go talk to people where money is spent. We have had an enormous impact domestically in the United States, uh, tracking money, following money by studying the normal, 
and then looking for what the abnormal is. Uh, we believe about $800 billion is being laundered domestically back down uh, to Mexico and South America from illegal activity. And uh, the criminal organizations are incredibly brilliant when it comes to hiding money in plain sight. So if you don't know, or your investigators don't know what normal is, it's very challenging to identify what's abnormal. And so my presentation is a walkthrough on how we've uh, increased our money seizures from laundered drug proceeds by about 500% in the state of Wyoming in the United States through following the money and talking to industry professionals to understand abnormal versus normal. Um, I will, while the slides are coming up, I will say uh, in the last 18 months in a post COVID climate where you don't see as much cash money movement, uh, we're still seeing that cash. I'm in the enforcement of narcotics. So what we see would definitely, uh, despite there being a cashless society where no one's accepting money because we, we're not really transacting um, with cash. We're still seeing money movement. Drugs are still sold for cash. And it's that movement of that cash that causes problems for the organizations. Uh, when I speak with law enforcement, I'm, I uh, again, working overseas, this was in Portugal, the interdiction of, I believe, 800 kilograms of cocaine by the uh, judicial police and their military elements from France, and Spain participated. And all this was on a regular basis, we were interdicting sailboats full of ton quantities of narcotics. So um, they keep making drugs. It's pretty cheap to manufacture and distribute narcotics. 99% uh, profit margin, they say. So following the money, uh, we found domestically, our jurors understand money much more than they do drugs. We are now leading uh, this year so far in 2021 in the United States, we have over 100,000 overdose deaths from narcotics. And we found that jurors uh, in our court system don't necessarily understand the difference between a kilogram of cocaine and an ounce of cocaine. So when we talk about money, it seems like in our court systems that our jurors do understand mortgages, car payments, payments for uh, toys like expensive boats, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking for the PowerPoint. It came up for a moment. It was great if you didn't see it. There it is. So hiding money in plain sight. Uh, in the United States, we have law enforcement that conducts uh, what we call consensual encounters or interdictions on the interstates. And it's on a regular basis. We used to see carloads full of cash wrapped in rubber bands that facilitate a quick transaction for narcotics and money. Uh, and now what we're seeing more, more than ever are prepaid cards where our traffickers, our criminal organizations are able to purchase these prepaid cards at a local grocery store, but they still have to load that money, that cash into bank accounts. So one of the tips that I would impart to the participants is engage with your banks, engage with the financial units, the anti-money laundering units at financial institutions where you work. Those relationships have proven to be the most uh, productive for me as the DEA in the United States. I get calls and emails daily from financial institutions across the country that are identifying suspicious money movement. 
And it's because I'm engaging with those financial institutions that they're reaching out. They didn't have a point of contact. And so I, I work very hard as a DEA agent to have established myself as a point of contact. And the results of those interactions with whether it be Western Union or the local, the bigger banks and even the smaller banks, that those communications are helping us to identify dirty money. Again, when I said we go out now and we'll go to, we find that our traffickers in the United States, um, because narcotics is an addictive driven industry where addicts are trying to uh, buy narcotics, that our traffickers, our mid-level traffickers are buying high dollar vehicles, uh, driving around town to show their customer base that they are successful and a consistent source of supply. So we started going out to the car dealerships and identifying uh, large cash purchases, which this is an example when one of the dealerships called us and said, you should come look at this money. With that money, our trafficker bought four cars, including this Cadillac Escalade. This is about, us, uh, in euros, I would say a 50,000 euro vehicle. We seized four vehicles from this individual. We were able to search the residence uh, for documents related to the uh, illegal purchase of this vehicle with what we articulated, we believed to be drug proceeds. And we recovered about 25 kilograms of cocaine, uh, four bank accounts, which we also seized. And again, it was the car dealership because we had gone out to these high value, high dollar car dealerships, they started to call us when someone would come in and transact with large amounts of cash, source of which could not be confirmed. Uh, we did tell them, please sell the car. Don't, don't not sell the car. If, if you think it's suspicious, let the investigators build their investigation. But uh, amazing points of contact from car dealerships, boat dealerships, airplane, uh, private airplane sellers, et cetera. In the United States, we have that the umbrella of money laundering. It's a complex scheme, which is why investigators often shy away from these investigations. There's those three phases of money laundering where we're trying to identify the placement phase where that money is entering the financial institution, usually in a way that is hoping to avoid detection by the banks. So what we see, the word of the day is commingling. We will see cash derived from criminal activity commingled with what appears to be legitimate checks. So we see front companies, whether it be construction or uh, whole food distribution lately is something that's blipped on the radar. Uh, uh, any sort of legitimate business, we see about 50% illegal money commingled. So it's mixed in with legitimate money. That's the placement phase. When we see it layered, we see that money move from one account to a different account, maybe the, in the name of a trust, et cetera, and then integrated where that money re-enters the system. And what we're seeing domestically, what I'm seeing the most is the acquisition of real property, because then your trafficking organization with real property can obtain what appears to be legitimate income from the sale or the rental of those uh, ill-gotten gains through real estate. Before I get into the operation, I would say that what we just recently observed was one of our traffickers went in and bought nine individual cruises for $9,400 a piece. Um, he paid cash for each ticket and he had a 48 hour cancellation policy with no 
penalty. So looking at as into the account of our criminal, what we saw, in fact, was a check remitted from the cruise company for $140,000. So the money actually appeared clean to the investigators when we saw that our target had all this uh, unexplained money. The investigator said, oh, well, he had a refund from a cruise line. So that money, therefore, must be clean. When we went to the cruise line and did an interview and found out that our target had actually come in on four different occasions uh, to purchase these tickets. That was the placement phase when he brought the cash in to buy the tickets, the cruise line tickets, knowing he had a cancellation policy. Uh, he then had the money brought back into his account, layered and reintegrated uh, as a refund from the cruise company. And his intention was to then use that money to acquire real property. We seized the money from the bank account. Um, laws in the United States allow us to take money, even if it's not the initial dirty cash, we're able to uh, show it as a substitute asset. So I'll quickly go through a case we did in Wyoming. It's hard to see where we are in the United States, but in the word operation, we're that state with the buffalo in it. Wyoming is the least populated state in the United States, very rural um, and a small population, but it is exploited for uh, its ease with which one can register a business. Again, we follow the money. We went and observed uh, to one of the car dealerships, an individual purchased a $76,000 truck. The individual who purchased the truck did not have a credit history. So it seems strange. She had brought in $14,000 in cash to buy this truck and I believe earned about $9,000 a year. So we already had an asset that exceeded our target's reported income. What we determined was several independent fast food restaurants in between Colorado and Wyoming, that's where I work in Cheyenne, were using a wholesale food distributor that had not registered with the United States to transport food. Uh, we have different organizations that you have to register with in order to distribute food. None of that had happened. There was no website for this company. There was no presence. And in order to establish that, we had to go speak with legitimate wholesale food companies to determine if they knew of this company. So we went overt in our investigation as uh, to determine what normal was. Uh, we say in the land of the blind, the one-eyed person is king. So what we try, or queen, I guess in 2021, royalty. What I impart to my investigators is you have to study what's normal. We were investigating a wholesale food distributor. In order to do that, we had to talk to legitimate wholesale food distributors to see what was normal. What is a standard business practice? We have to articulate that in affidavits to our magistrates in order to demonstrate something uh, nefarious. Uh, we worked with anti-money laundering organizations uh, established within the banks, uh, communicated our case. They ended up working with us. We saw that our particular company that we were investigating was about 33% cash intensive. That meant of their deposits into their account, 33% were cash. The normal, the industry standard is 0.5%. So we knew we were on to something. We did not have drugs ever in this case. Spoiler alert, we forfeit 66 bank accounts, $2.3 million. We won the entire case for money laundering. When we ended up 
doing a search warrant at our wholesale food distributor. We saw boxes and boxes of unrefrigerated meats. Uh, it was a carne picada that was actually supplied to the United States uh, to legitimate wholesale food distributors. Uh, the company was uh, out of Mexico, we believe uh, is being run by uh, Joaquin Guzman's family. Uh, we're still investigating that side of it, working with our counterparts and financial investigative units in Mexico. But this is not legitimate. Uh, meat's supposed to be refrigerated at least before it's distributed. Uh, when we did our search warrant, again, remember I said there was 33% cash intensive uh, transactions by this business. They didn't have a cash register, no mechanism to take in cash. They did have a cash counting machine. Through working with different financial institutions, we identified, as I said, 66 accounts that were involved in this money laundering scheme. We executed search warrants on several safe deposit boxes and recovered uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash uh, secreted in safe deposit boxes, which again can be a crime in the United States. Uh, what we saw here, we had to we we looked at invoices, and I said hiding money in plain sight. And if you look at the bottom here, you'll see the amount three dollars and eighty-five cents, and the total of two thousand three hundred ten dollars. Our organization was falsifying invoices to account for all the money deposited into their accounts. Again, if you look there, that you'll see that carne picada. And you'll see the quantity, 1,200 units sold at three, 20 pounds. This is an enormous amount of meat, which again, we believe they were just falsifying invoices to account for all the money deposited in the account. We had to study what normal invoices looked like through legitimate wholesale food distributors to understand the anomalies we observed. This is an example of the carne picada that was being invoiced by this company, $286, I'm sorry, $286,000 in a two month period. Next slide, please. And this is from their invoices. That's an enormous amount of meat. Um, what we did see is they had purchased uh, in that same time frame over $331,000 of this carne picada. We then followed that money from the wholesale food distributor that was legitimate, and that money was then wired down toward criminal organization in Mexico. Um, the Mexican government has limited how much US currency can be deposited into, US, into Mexican banks. Therefore, they're relying heavily on trade-based money laundering to get that money wired into Mexico and avoid the uh, banks looking at it or the uh, bulk cash that we used to see going into Mexico. Again, an example, if you look to the right-hand side of this account, bank account, this is all the cash we were seeing deposited into these restaurants um, that were laundering money on behalf of the wholesale food distributor. And just another example of all that cash movement. This is my final slide. I am so honored to be able to speak to you all this morning. For me, it's the morning. Uh, and I quote Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote the book, Blink. I highly recommend that book to uh, investigators. He says, whenever we have something that we are good at, something we care about, that experiment, experience and passion fundamentally changes the nature of our first impressions. You have to study what's normal and go with your gut on these cases. The only way I believe we can actually impact the crime, organized crime, is to attack the financial uh, 
foundations of these organizations. I'm not trying to hurt them, but we're certainly trying to disincentivize criminal activity by taking their money. Thank you, I am done. Thank you so much, David, for that presentation, for the philosophy at the end, and for the excellent um, walkthrough of the different modalities that money is passing. That was very interesting indeed. I'm now very pleased to pass the floor to Gus Jones, who is a retired police officer from the UK Metropolitan Police. Gus will be reflecting back on some of David's experiences and the points he's shared and on his own experience with following illicit money flows. So, Gus, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you very much um, for asking me to speak this afternoon. Hopefully, despite my age, I'll be able to contribute to this debate. Um, my first experience of involved in major financial investigation was when I was in Hong Kong in 1983, um, investigating a huge fraud relating to the Midland Bank. Midland Bank has now departed. Um, and I first came across the, the term, you're living beyond your official remuneration. Um, which actually nowadays is called an unexplained wealth order. Uh, I think they're an important element in investigating um, financial links concerned with drug trafficking, in fact, with all crime. Um, if you're, a, let's say, a police officer in the, rural Hong, in the Hong Kong police on $100 a month, and you own three MWs, a Porsche and a castle in the New Territories, it's not all come from your granny. So this is hence the uh, following your, um, above your official remuneration. Um, on back, coming back from there in 1986, we first introduced legislation in the UK uh, whereby you could trace and seize drug-related monies. Now it's all crime. Um, and of course, led to the um, liaison with banks, reporting of suspicious transactions um, in a whole new field for the police. I set up a small team at New Scotland Yard and we were dedicated to financial intelligence, liaison with banks, other agencies, estate agents, and so on. And the question now I have to ask, is that still happening? Each police force within the UK, there are 30, sorry, 43, I think, it doesn't really matter, had a dedicated team, of a small team of dedicated officers doing nothing but tracing the money, seizing assets. Unfortunately, the bulk of that has gone. These teams have disappeared. It enhanced our... Our, my small team enhanced our cooperation with the FBI, DEA, Australia, Canada. Um, but our liaison with Europe was somewhat limited during that period. That began to change because I was a member of the very first G7 Financial Action Task Force in our very first meeting in Paris, 1989, I think. Um, now, I know it's much larger now, but this led to an expansion of, um, the, of the investigation techniques in following the money. Um, it, led, it also began the sort of expansion of the British drug liaison network throughout Europe. I eventually or shortly um, ended up working in Italy and I'll come to that. But um, one of our sort of major cases then, it just goes to show that back then, London was a major money laundering centre. Um, it's even bigger now, but we dealt with the Noriega case um, who was um, sending huge amounts of money uh, to the London banking system uh, by the bank called BCCCI. Um, it's now defunct. We used to call it the Bank of Crooks and Crime International, um, but don't repeat that. Um, but, so, but nothing changes. The situation in 2021 is far worse. I mean, people put 
people were estimates on how much, how much money they laundered through London. It's billions of pounds, billions of dollars, euros uh, every year. Uh, dirty money is, is actually flooding um, into the country. Um, and that, in, that hardly touches human trafficking, as you probably read. It's a real problem here at the moment. Um, a couple of weeks ago, in one day, a thousand people were trafficked from France into UK. Now, if you average that at about 3,000 pounds or 3,000 euros, it matters not, per person, I think that works out at about 3 million pounds in one day taken by the traffickers. Now, that money is going somewhere. People have asked me, what are they doing with it? Yes, there are local organizations in, in, in France, but that money is going into the system. There's no point. You cannot walk around with 3 million euros in your back pocket. It's being put into the system. As David explained, I was very interested to hear their, one of their main messages is liaison with banks and other agencies. I think in UK, we're losing that capacity. I don't know why. Um, in 1989, uh, Judge Giovanni Falcone came to London. Um, I was running the financial intelligence team and he obviously liaised with, with, my, with my office. We met him in London and he was um, at the height of his investigative powers in Italy. Um, the maxi trial had just been completed uh, and he was following the money. He was in London to follow the money, not just in London, but also in the Channel Islands. He went from us into, across to Guernsey. It was the first time I really heard that expression, following the money, the money. The, the Falconian mantra that I think we all use um, day in, day out now. Um, he explained in detail in our discussions, uh, it was all about power and money. And, um, and there was no more um, important and successful route to get to the, the height of organizations, the top of organizations. Of course, he was investigating the Cosa Nostra in Sicily in particular at that time. They were the most powerful or, uh, mafia organization in the world. Now it's in Drangheta are probably the most powerful as uh, coming from Italy. Although the whole sphere has widened to Turkey, to Russia, to Albania, human trafficking, Albanian organized crime groups, perhaps. <clears throat> so this cooperation was, was essential. Uh, our, our, our posts in Europe were widening. And I just mentioned very, very briefly the term, a lot of you will know, especially those in Europe, Brexit. Will this affect what's you know, all the good work which we've built up since 1990? Will it be compromised? I think it probably will. Although we still have liaison officers in Europe, um, I'm told that to a certain extent, the trust is gone when dealing with the UK. Um, we're almost back to 1990 when we started this whole process of putting liaison officers throughout Europe. <clears throat> now, I didn't know I'd be posted to Italy during my first meeting with Judge Falcone. In fact, Falcone, perhaps some others in this forum have actually met him. He was an extremely kind, gentle man. Um, he had a knack of dealing with, with mafia figures and he gave them respect, um, apart from his capacity to follow the money. And this is why they spoke to him. <clears throat> so I ended up in Rome as the first British police officer to be stationed in Italy and also covering Albania. Um, and we we're obviously working on uh, organized crime, drug trafficking, coming from South America into Italy, and of course, ultimately a lot of it to the UK. Um, I met uh, Judge Falcone 
on numerous occasions. <clears throat> and we all always ended up talking about money, his mantra, and London, and the link with Italian organized crime to London in particular. In London now, if you go along, the, along, and David mentioned about bringing the money, getting it into the system, you must get it into the system. Along the River Thames now in London, there are huge apartment blocks, um, new apartment blocks, and they're all empty. Now, there's a reason for that. You've got to get your money, corrupt money, into the system, and that's one, one of the major ways of doing it. Um, I actually saw uh, Judge uh, Falcone at a, at a conference in, in Rome. He was leading the anti-mafia directorate by then, just two weeks before his assassination. Um, it's, uh, this is a sort of not a well-known fact, but I noticed that during this conference, I was there with a DEA colleague, in actual fact, um, who I won't mention, that he was being ignored by all the senior politicians and others in that, in that forum. So I went and spoke to him and said, what's going on here? And he just said, I'm becoming too powerful. Um, this is my turn, not his. Too much of a, not embarrassment, but danger to this government. And I've been abandoned. And this is why nobody um, is speaking to me. And they were passing him by, which, is, as you know, Italy, that is very unusual. And of course, within two weeks, he had been assassinated en route from Palermo Airport. Um, now, my question is... Uh, unconscious at the time, that have, have these lessons been learned? The Falcone mantra in the USA, I think without date, David's just explained it. In the United Kingdom, yes, we were learning these lessons in the early days, but I think the message is gone. Certainly the skill set has gone. There was a time in the Metropolitan Police when the, when the fraud squad who used to involved in, in financial investigation as wider remit, was something like 250 strong. And I was told this week there are perhaps only 20 now. And are they really investigating um, on the ground? Possibly not. Knowing I was, I was coming to speak in this forum, um, I thought I'd better check with an ex-metropolitan uh, colleague and an expert on financial investigation. He's still involved in financial investigation in its wider uh, format for as a, as a consultant for major organizations and personalities. Um, and I asked him, where are we? Um, can you assess now with the late 1980s, early 1990s? And his answer was very plain to me. We have slipped dramatically. National agencies, main financial intelligence sources are investigative journalists. They're getting the information from journalists because they've lost the skill set, both nationally and internationally. This is the British I'm talking about. They've lost the skill set to carry out the very functions that David has talked um, very eloquently about in his, in his presentation. So in closing, all I can say is um, <clears throat> the UK needs urgently a Falcone or a Borsellino to follow that mantra of following the money. But regretfully, no such individuals are available in the UK at the moment. Thank you very much once again for asking me. And I hope I've contributed. Thank you very much, Gus. That was a very thoughtful presentation and a demanding, certainly, conclusion as an answer. Uh, sorry, question at the conclusion. Um, I look forward to hearing others' views. I will remind all of you that you're very welcome to ask questions or make comments in the chat. So feel free to do so as the conversations go on. Um, and we'll look forward to a discussion on these topics after the final presentation. 
So in that, I'm very pleased to hand the floor on to Niels van der Meulen. He is a senior police officer for the Dutch police and has a lot of experience in his role at financial investigations and is looking forward to sharing them with you now. Niels, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tuesday. Hi there to all of you. Um, oh, I already love this uh, conference, uh, although I'm uh, new here. Um, one of the reasons is that it is, uh, well, it makes available such a huge network. And uh, I work for the Dutch police, but I'm detached to a network organization of uh, public organizations, uh, in which among others are, uh, well, the police, of course, and uh, like the tax authorities, and a couple of municipalities in Greater Amsterdam, and also the prosecutor's uh, office. Well, one of the things this uh, organization on the holistic approach of organized crime uh, uh, wants to do is build up knowledge. Uh, as you already noticed, I'm uh, uh, otherwise than Gus and uh, David, not a native speaker, so I hope you can follow my presentation. Um, but one of the things uh, that we wanted to do at this organization is uh, to learn about how do those uh, illegal uh, criminal uh, money flows uh, work. And one of the subjects we have been into are money transfers. And I will tell you something about uh, the things we already uh, well found out. And um, I'm also glad to uh, uh, get uh, tips or hints from you about what else we could do. Um, I will tell you something about, well, the trends in cash. David already told you something about it as well. I think they will be very general, so it will be soon. Then about criminal cash and uh, that cash is still king. And then I will go into uh, what are money transfers and how are they related to criminal cash. And uh, then I will tell you something about the way we think uh, we can uh, combat uh, this problem and we will also would like uh, well to see if we can have some discussion uh, about that well one of the uh, major trends uh, worldwide is the less uh, use of cash uh, the Netherlands is one of the front runners in this uh, in this trend and well that means that there are uh, becoming less and less uh, legal businesses that are uh, really into cash. Another trend is that we uh, get better and better uh, banking controls. Uh, this is especially true uh, for the Netherlands uh, since there have been a couple of major investigations in one of the, uh, of, in a couple of uh, the great banks in the Netherlands. And those investigations have led to uh, huge um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm lost the word of huge uh, fines uh, towards those banks. And uh, as a reaction on those uh, investigations and fines, uh, those banks have uh, uh, contracted uh, literally uh, thousands of uh, people that are involved in uh, anti-money laundering uh, and due diligence uh, sector. So the Dutch banks at this moment, uh, they produce a lot of uh, uh, suspicious um, transactions, uh, which is of course, a, 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 well, a, a big, um, a, a big 
knowledge part to uh, know how the illegal flows work. Um, so those two uh, those two trends combined, uh, the less use of cash and uh, better banking controls, uh, they led to the difficulties by the criminals to get rid of their cash. We still see that criminal cash is uh, king, although this is already seven years old report from Europol. Uh, it is also what I, what I myself and my colleagues uh, still see uh, explicitly in the drug scene. Uh, yeah, everybody who wants to uh, use drugs uh, buys it with cash money. And uh, well, this cash money still has to find its way. Although uh, cryptocurrency are on the rise uh, also for criminal use, um, the use of cash money is still uh, very big. Okay, and uh, from uh, our organization, we have uh, done a project on money transfer organizations. This is like a, uh, when you look at Europol reports, uh, most of the time they talk about money service businesses. Uh, the money service businesses uh, are a little bit wider than especially those money transfer organizations. Those are the organizations, well, they're here, Western Union, Money Trans, RIA, Small World, uh, which are the providers, and they make it possible to hand in cash at a certain place in the world and uh, get the cash uh, somewhere else in the world. Um, and they make use, uh, those providers are like huge international organizations. And they have uh, very good uh, AML uh, systems as well. But they make use of agents. And those agents are local. Uh, as you can see, uh, some two examples uh, from the Amsterdam area. And those agents are uh, so-called shop-in-shops, uh, which means that they uh, provide the uh, Western Union or RIA uh, um, possibilities, but uh, they have they are in a grocery or they are in a phone store. So it's uh, one of their businesses they uh, they run, and they, those agents can use the infrastructure of those huge organizations. And one of the weaknesses is that the customer due diligence takes place at the agent level. Um, well, we have made a. Uh, uh, we have uh, types, uh, three types of agents. Um, and what we see in our analysis is that you can have agents uh, who uh, transport criminal cash without their knowledge. Um, you can have them who are uh, in consent of it and uh, also well uh, help the people that want to center criminal cash. And there are agents that are really complicit and are part of the uh, network and uh, those three types um, uh, you can see certain types of abuse which are uh, on the right of this sheet uh, so-called smurfing uh, which might be familiar to a lot of you but it's uh, that you what the thing that you do is that because of uh, aml standards uh, a certain amount of money is always reported uh, as suspicious and uh, to stay uh, beneath that uh, amount, you uh, make it in parts. So you make parts of 400, 400, 400 euros in different 
uh, on different agents, and then they don't have to report uh, your transaction. This is called smurfing, and uh, it can be used without the knowledge or consent of the agents, uh, but it can also be offered uh, by the agents. Um, another type of abuse is the manipulation of uh, IDs. Uh, that is in case uh, the amount has to be reported then it is very interested to, interesting to uh, well, report it from somebody else than uh, is actually there. Uh, and this will be a type of abuse that is with knowledge or consent of the agent because he is uh, participating or even uh, um, asking uh, for this to do. Uh, another type of abuse is uh, that the agent is used as a cover uh, for underground banking. Um, all those agents, uh, although in the Netherlands, or not although, in the Netherlands, they have a license. Um, and this license uh, makes, uh, it's controllable. But uh, what we see is that they use the license to make it uh, easy for people to enter and to have a lot of cash money inside. But on the other hand, uh, on the background of the store also do uh, uh, some underground banking. And uh, the fourth type of abuse is that uh, the uh, agent is used for transactions of the criminal network it is part of. And this can be transactions by the uh, um, facilities of the providers, but it can also be uh, transactions um, from the shop in shop in which the agent is placed. And in this case, the AML uh, of the banks is very useful because we get a lot of reports from banks uh, that tell us that uh, um, amounts of cash money uh, are deposits on their uh, bank accounts. And it's not clear if this, this uh, cash money comes from their work as an agent for one of those providers or from a, a third source. Uh, maybe criminal. Well, this is my uh, final slide for my story. Uh, might come that some of those suggestions are a little bit out of, uh, out of the blue, but uh, we have done analysis and uh, also controls. And uh, from there, we have find out that uh, some of the people that work in the agents uh, have criminal records which uh, we found uh, very awkward and uh, uh, we would like to see uh, elsewhere. Um, uh, another thing is that uh, it would be good to make an end of the use of the manipulated or multiple IDs. Um, a third uh, way of, uh, well, stopping or ending this uh, practice uh, might be to have less concentrations of many transfer agents. And this is uh, uh, this is mostly, uh, how do you say, it? targeted on the smurfing action, actions because smurfing becomes less uh, attractive when you have to travel uh, around uh, to put the, the different parts of money uh, in the, to the different agents. Uh, another thing is that it would be good to have a strict registration uh, in a register and in the, uh, in the Chamber of Commerce of who is uh, a licensed agent, 
because uh, sometimes uh, it is thought that uh, it is difficult to uh, to see if somebody is really licensed. And at, le at last, uh, and this is um, um, most of it from the suspicious reports of the banks, is that it would be uh, good to have like uh, some kind of third party bank accounts on which the cash money that comes from the transfers uh, has to be deposited and no other money uh, comes in. The banks uh, at this moment, uh, they uh, it's hard for them to tell where the cash money comes from. And when there is like a one-on-one uh, one -on -one, uh, relationship between the transfers and the uh, amount of money they have to uh, transfer to, uh, for example, Western Union, it becomes uh, far more difficult to misuse uh, those agents. Um, and I have said discussion here, but maybe it's better to end the presentation and uh, get the floor back to the panel on Tuesday. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Niels, for that excellent presentation. We will indeed now open the floor for questions. We've had a number already, so I will encourage those who wish to still ask a question to please drop them into the chat um, relatively soon. We'll have about 20 minutes for discussion. What I'm going to propose that we do is that we cluster questions for the different speakers. So um, I will just summarize the three now that have been directed at David. And David, I'll ask you to answer them first. If you look in the chat, you'll see them written there too. So firstly, there was a question to you. Can FIUs and AML officers now spot these crimes simply through profiling firms like the meat company that you referenced? And what could researchers do to spot these crimes in publicly available data, such as in trade statistics? Secondly, a comment, a question. Being a retired US federal law enforcement officer, I'm amazed how state authorities like Wyoming and Delaware have easy incorporation laws. Is this something that on, only indicative to US states or is it a global phenomena? And maybe other comment, uh, panelists would like to respond to that particular question as they make their remarks. What can be done to mitigate criminal, criminal elements from using this avenue to conduct money laundering activities? And then finally, David, do the car dealers only accept the criminal proceeds or do they also provide false paper trails for the criminals to hide them and their financial flows? Uh, David, to you, please. Can you come back on video, sure. panelists? Sure, yes. And I apologize, I'm putting my video back on. Okay, so those are great questions and I'm gonna read them up in the chats as well to make sure I answer them intelligently. I would, I'm gonna go backwards. With the car dealerships, um, there's very little that in the United States that somebody needs to provide if they wanna do an all cash transaction uh, to purchase a vehicle. And that's what we'll focus on. The, the dealerships that are legitimate will file a form um, and we will review that form through a subpoena process and, and actually subpoena the whole car file. It's been my experience that when, uh, regardless if it's a cash transaction or not, the dealerships will have the purchaser file a um, credit history report and we'll rely heavily on that credit history report to demonstrate as the panelists already discussed that the purchaser doesn't have the uh, reported income to support that asset. And in our system in the courts, that's for us, it gives us a strong footing to say that this is probably purchased 
with uh, proceeds of a crime. And we'll have to, um, we will corroborate that information by investigating the purchaser, looking at phone records, seeing who they're speaking to, uh, doing social media searches, et cetera. And for, look, in the United States, we do call it dope. And some would argue that's because the people we deal with are dummies. Um, if you're a drug trafficker, you're bragging about it on social media has been our experience so far. Uh, I hope that answers that question. Uh, working backwards from those questions and I didn't bring my glasses. Uh, okay, Re with regard to establishing um, limited liability corporations in the United States that we would use, talk about as front companies. Wyoming is probably, if not the easiest, the second easiest in the United States because you can go through a registrant online. I believe it's $50 to establish a business that does not have a brick and mortar presence in Wyoming. Um, and it, it's, it's a, we work closely with the Secretary of State to try and uh, investigate that further, but it's very challenging if someone opens what in the United States we call a limited liability corporation, what they're doing is saying, I have a business, I am in construction, and it's David's concrete business, and I established it in Wyoming, but I can operate anywhere in the United States, and it's up to us as investigators then to get those bank accounts and, and talk to those in legitimate construction industry to determine if what we're looking at in that money movement is outside of what's normal. So it's unfortunate, um, I guess, from a, looking at organized crime, but if you're looking at it as somebody, uh, free enterprise, and uh, they're wanting to establish businesses and make those rules easier to promote industry, um, you can't, we can't always look at it as people are out trying to commit crimes all the time. But yes, I would say the Wyoming, and then I believe Rhode Island, and Oregon are very easy states to establish these limited liability corporations. I will also tell you that in a post-COVID climate, many states are moving to this online process, which is making it easier for criminal organizations to open up companies online without ever having to go into a government building and provide any sort of documentation. Uh, next question, and I'm looking and I should have brought my glasses. Uh, let's see. I'm missing the questions. Can you help me out? Definitely. So oh. the third question to you was um, if you could, on the car dealers, yes. are they just accepting the money and doing the transactions or are they also falsifying documents to actually facilitate illegal transactions? The car dealerships aren't doing, that. so far the legitimate car dealerships aren't doing anything to facilitate uh, uh, anything illegal. They will accept the money. And this is part of us going out and talking to the dealerships. The number one concern the dealerships have is if a bad guy comes in with a bag full of cash, can they sell the car? And we say, please continue the transaction, but notify us because otherwise our, our targets will go elsewhere. Uh, the dealerships themselves, I, so far, I haven't seen anything they're doing illegal because, again, if someone comes in with a bag full of cash, the dealership's only required to file a form uh, indicating as such if it's over $10,000. Um, they're, not, they're not required to do much more than that in order to uh, facilitate that transaction. So we haven't seen the dealerships doing anything nefarious. 
we also don't see our targets trying to finance that purchase over the course of three or four years. They want to get in, pay for the car, and get out. Uh, we do see oftentimes that they will use a proxy purchaser. So they will bring in maybe a girlfriend, a boyfriend, uh, somebody who has no association with the criminal organization. And that requires us at times to talk to car salesmen. And I hate talking to car salesmen. I would rather uh, put needles in my eyes, but we do have to, we do that to establish who the real purchaser was. And it's questions like, okay, we saw that the tires were uh, upgraded, who made that decision? And the car salesman will say, well, it wasn't the female that bought the car, it was her boyfriend. Okay, that's that name would never show up on the documents. So sometimes we do have to talk to the car salesman. And I apologize in advance for that if anyone's in car sales. <laughs> Thank you, David, much appreciated for that very concrete example and for your responses to the questions. Um, we have a couple of questions I'm now gonna direct at Gus. Gus, um, you've been asked, firstly, um, oh, sorry, if individuals in the UK had the skill set to follow the money, what other barriers, for example, legislative, would they face in doing so? I'd also ask you, please, to also pick up this question, which uh, has been asked, and I think your experience, your long experience would help to give a good insight, which is, they were wondering, since following the money flow is such a time-consuming process and lots of other resources go into it, is there any point where some cases are not being considered because they're not worthy or not big enough? And similarly, is there a kind of a way to prioritize cases, for example, those with links to terrorism or mafia groups? Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Uh, the first question is fairly easy to answer. Originally, only related to the legislation, that is, to drugs. Now it covers all crime. So yes, the legislation is there, uh, it affects all crime. Um, and of course, disclosures, we talk a lot about financial institutions, um, but the suspicious transactions actually applies to everybody, estate agents, car dealers, as David has explained, if someone goes in with 60,000 pounds in cash and buys a new car, I'd say that's a suspicious transaction. So it covers all, the legislation is there, uh, as it is with the unexplained wealth orders. Um, now, with regard to who you're going to target, yeah, you've got to choose, obviously. You can't sort of follow the money everywhere. So, but the important thing, in back to Falcone, the only way to get to the very top, to the top of these organisations, whether it be terrorism, um, drugs, human trafficking, is by following the money. It's the only way you'll do it. There's no other way to do it. So, yes, you have to prioritise, but it really is. That can be done at the lower level as well. Um, You've got to prioritise, but that really is the crucial way of doing it. <clears throat> I hope that helps a bit. Yes. Um, th sorry, thank you, Gus, very much. Um, finally, uh, round of questions to Niels. <laughs> there are three questions to you. Firstly, has there been a positive development of participation of the criminal justice system and the holistic approach in the Netherlands? Not that long ago, researchers complained that law enforcement and prosecutors did not participate and treated the holistic approach as a fallback when prosecutions were not viable. Um, second question to you is that in the Netherlands, I have the feeling that a lot of barbershops are used for money laundering. Is this something on the radar of the Dutch police? Um, third, and sorry, two, two questions for you in addition, which were posted to the panelists as a whole. Firstly, is um, 
is starting an investigation on money flows. So actually the start of a new investigation or will it be related to a previous case? And then finally, if you could, um, there's a question on cryptocurrencies. So how do you think that cryptocurrencies um, and smart contracts are altering the IFF landscape? And do you think there's capacity in regulation bodies to respond? Uh, Niels, to you. And then we'll give everybody in the panel a chance for a short concluding remark to sum up everything that we've discussed over the last session. Niels? Yeah, thanks. Well, uh, it's a recognizable. A rec I do recognize the way it's stated that it's, uh, uh, how do you say that? It's difficult to get uh, prosecution and uh, uh, criminal investigations together with all kinds of different uh, other approaches. Although, uh, well, that's why I'm here. I'm a strong believer in that it can be very, uh, they can really strengthen uh, this. And in my own region, I see that uh, more and more people also uh, involved in the policy decisions in police and prosecutor uh, office, uh, well, do uh, get uh, involved in this. Um, so, um i'm i'm uh yeah how do you say this but i'm uh, uh hopeful in that this will uh be a strong development for the next decade um and that's also what i see in uh the uh position that the dutch government uh, takes in that um about the barbershops well the barbershops are uh are known uh, alongside with the uh, tanning salons and the souvenir shops, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that, uh, well, I'm not aware of one special project on uh, the barbershops, but I'm, uh, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that uh, they can be used. Uh, it's also cash-based uh, economy, uh, partly. So, uh, so that's familiar. And on the uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, well, as far as I know, the um, the National Bank of the Netherlands is now a supervisor on cryptocurrencies for the Netherlands, which means that every uh, platform that is based in the Netherlands uh, has to uh, cope with AML uh, regulations and uh, people have to uh, identify it. Um, well, uh, I, I think that uh, helps in a small way. On the other hand, uh, well, it's all it, it's known that it's, it, with crypto, it's very easy to uh, get to different jurisdictions. Uh, so it will help a little. Um, and um, I was uh, would also like to react on the, uh, the the car dealer example of uh, David because I've been involved in a. Uh, case in which uh, we got this suspicious report from the car dealer in the Netherlands. You uh, also, as car dealer, you uh, have to uh, uh, report uh, cash payments, uh, and we have used this uh, cash payment as a start for a uh, uh, for an investigation, uh, and it helped us to identify uh, by his girlfriend a, a real uh, big uh, drug dealer. Uh, which was not in uh, in view of the uh, Dutch police beforehand. So that's also nice to see that it works out that way. So far, thank you. 
Thank you very much, Niels. Um, what I would like to do in the last five minutes, and thank you everybody for the engaged discussion, is just give all of the panelists one and a half minutes just to sum up on their concluding thoughts and takeaways, what you really feel that this panel and the participants in it need to, to remember from your comments. So I'll go in reverse order for a change um, and give the floor to Niels first, if you don't mind. Come back, Niels. Yes, there I am again. Thank you very much. Um, well, uh, for me, I think it's, uh, and, and I heard it also by David and Gus, it's very important uh, that you are there with your uh, complete network and that you make use of, uh, of others, um, uh, their, uh, uh, their knowledge uh, and their information. And that is not only public organizations, but it's also uh, the banking organizations. And in my project, uh, it would be very nice to see if we could involve the providers uh, themselves in our uh, investigation. So that's, I think, uh, one of the major points in uh, following uh, illegal money. Thank you, Niels. Uh, Gus, to you, and then finally to David. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, once again, thank you very much for involving me in this. It really has uh, been, been enlightening, and it's confirmed, um, having speak, uh, listened to the other two presenters, that uh, it's confirmed that uh, all my outdated uh, thoughts are still very current um, and long may they last. And very briefly, um, very well, well in Italy, I've been part of a thing called the Rome Report together with a senior foreign office diplomat. Um, about 40 pages circulated throughout UK and Europe talking about the, all these issues we've just discussed today. But to see any more further of details of the Rome Report, you'll have to wait for my book to come out, Three Bullets on the Doorstep. Thank you very much. Oh, nice plug, Gus. Thank you. <laughs> so check out Gus's book, everybody. And finally, David, you opened us. Please close us out. Sure, I'll be plugging my Netflix special, although Netflix hasn't agreed to do anything with me at this point. I would simply say that if the takeaway should be uh, financial crime and predicate crime, whether it's human trafficking, drug trafficking, fraud, is they're not mutually exclusive. And following and identifying suspicious money movement should be the focus. And from that, you'll find the predicate crime. Again, my message is TTP, talk to people. We, none of us are secret agents. We, are, we have to go out and understand the industries so we can, and when we study what's normal, abnormal will come, will rise to the surface. And these cases should not be uh, set on the back burner. They should be on the forefront of everyone's mind. If we're actually trying to impact transnational organized crime, we have to attack the financial backings. That's the only way we're going to have impact, especially in the world of narcotics. They will continue to produce narcotics. They'll continue to be a demand for narcotics. But if we can attack the financial incentive behind that crime and have impact, I think it's measurable and it actually impacts the communities where we live. Thank you so much, David. Excellent sum up and conclusion and motivational message. To everybody who's joined us in this panel today, I offer your, on behalf of you all, our thanks to David, Niels and Gus for taking the time to discuss with us and share their experience. <coughs> Everyone, thank you for being part of this discussion. I hope you will join subsequent sessions of our OC24. There are a number on similar themes related to illicit financial flows and practical examples of policing. <clears throat> there, are, there are, if you look at the schedule, sessions on the organized crime in the private sector, 
on enablers to organized crime, which is looking at some of the policy frameworks. <coughs> Sorry. And there are sessions on, for example, confiscation of assets, organized corruption. So plenty on offer over the next 24 hours. Please do uh, check them out and give us any feedback you have on this panel or others. Thank you very much for joining OC24. See you later, much later. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.